0: Good morning, everybody. It's a different kind of day today. You can probably tell I'm more dressed up than normal. I'm overdressed, uh, for this church anyway. And that is because I am leaving as soon as I'm done speaking. That's why we've only had one song so far. I'm leaving uh, to go up to Washington for the funeral service of uh, a baby who died. And it's the, it's the son, five and a half month old son of a good friend of mine. And so uh, keep them in your prayers. And you know, this last couple of weeks... We were talking about this as we were bringing stuff in today. It seems like everybody's dying and uh, everybody kind of is dying in a way. But I mean, I don't feel like I can turn on the news or have a conversation with somebody without somebody saying, hey, did you hear who died? And some of these have been closer to me, like my friend's son, and and some have been further from me, like actors and actresses and things like that. But it seems like everybody uh, is, is dying, and, and it makes you stop and reflect sometimes. And makes you think about life and what you're doing in life and uh, what your life is about and what you want your life to be about and what you want to accomplish in life and all of those kinds of things. And uh, as I think about my life and uh, just kind of think about memories in my life, a lot of those memories are centered around trips to Disneyland. And uh, I think about going to Disneyland, and now if you were to walk into Disneyland with me, you would think I was a crazy fool, because I walk in to the Magic Kingdom, and I see Mickey's face and flowers, if you know what I'm talking about, and I hear the railroad uh, station guy's voice, and I get super Emotional. I mean, like I start crying, and I, it's this difficult moment for me because it is a symbol of kind of my entire life, and and just the memories there, and and the loved ones that I've gone there, and kind of the childhood that you can't get back. If you understand that, so Disneyland is this emotional place for me. And as I think about Disneyland, it's funny that I like it so much because some of my earliest memories in Disneyland are not so great at all. Uh, In fact, one of my very first memories in Disneyland, I was three years old, we went down there, and we got on the Pirates of the Caribbean. And if you've never been on the ride, you walk in and there's pirates, and... They look kinda of real and you think they're gonna kill you as a three year old anyway and then, and then your dad is saying to you, just get on this little boat and let's just drive into the darkness. And, and you're thinking like, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die. And then you kinda of go and it's kinda of nice and, and you kinda of got like this, this New Orleans kinda of scene down there, you know, and, and the crickets are chirping and then you take this turn into this tunnel. And there's this pirate that's up on top above your boat and he basically says what you already knew and that is that he's going to kill you. And, and then there's this drop, and I remember after the first drop, this is a true story, and I can't believe that the Disneyland people let me get away with this, but if you know the little boats you're in, uh, you're you're not tied in at all because it's not that scary of a ride, but there's a little front section, and I literally crawled down in the front section and rode the rest of the ride hiding under the little ledge so I didn't have to see anything. It's a true story. Well, one of my next memories, because we went often, uh, for me vacation was Disneyland as a child, but... The next thing I remember uh, is, is uh, going to Knott's Berry Farm. We always went there when I was a kid. It's changed a lot, and so we don't go anymore because it's not the same as it was. But that's a side note. Anyway, and so I remember, I six years old, I think, and I was finally tall enough to ride the big rides, which for a lot of kids, is like, yes, I can go on the roller coasters now. For me, it was not like that. It was like... Oh, I I don't think I'm tall enough. I I can't I can't reach that line. And and so Montezuma's Revenge, if if you know that right, it's just a simple loop. You go up, you you loop back backwards, and then it's all over. And my dad is like, you have to try it one time. If you never want to go again, that's fine. And before we got on the ride, I'm not joking, Montezuma had his revenge because we spent like 20 minutes in the bathroom as I was preparing myself to go on this ride as a six-year-old. I remember, I think we went to the bathroom, got back in line, and then went back to the bathroom because I was like, I can't do it yet, I I just need a minute here. Uh, And and so, uh, scary, scary things. And then, as as an older person... um, it was uh, one of the last couple of times we've been to Disneyland uh, maybe uh, well been twice i guess but two times ago uh there was a new ride and uh the ride is called the Tower of Terror and uh it's it's this ride that takes you up in this hotel and it, it, it just drops you. And, uh, and I don't like the falling feeling. I'm okay with going fast. I can go fast all day. But, but I don't understand why people like to feel like they're about to die. That doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, but again, my dad, you have to go. It's really cool. It won't be that scary. And you're 25 years old. Okay? <laughs> you can't get under the line anymore. And, and so I get on this ride and the, the expectation, if you, if you have been on many rides, is way worse usually than the ride, right? I mean, it's that build up, and at Disneyland, you're in a two-hour line, and so you're thinking about how it's almost over. I mean, your whole life is flashing before your eyes, and you're thinking about the things you should have said to people, and you're making phone calls, and uh, you're asking for your last dinner, and things like that, and so we get on this ride, and my stepmom, Sandy, can tell you uh, it's one of her favorite moments, and we have a picture now of, of this ride. It's still in existence. We had some video footage, but the, but the picture is this. Me here, I'll explain that in a second. Sandy, my stepmom, right next to me with the biggest, hugest grin on her face. She's laughing super hard. And a guy in front of us that we're not connected to at all, laughing his head off as well. Do you want to know what they're laughing at? They're laughing at me screaming like this, ah! the whole entire time. And this is how I am when I get on rides. And, and here's the thing about uh, rides and, and, and my... My attitude towards them is I'm pretty timid and I'm pretty scared. And and when I think about that, I think that most people live their lives wanting to do something great, wanting to make a difference, but they live their lives in a way that is scared and timid and not really accomplishing much. And in the New Testament, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, we see the beginning of this letter from the Apostle Paul, this man who wasn't timid, to a guy that he calls his son in the faith. It's a guy that he mentored and that he loved named Timothy. And he writes this letter because Timothy is a great man of God, a pastor, somebody who has accomplished much, but yet he had a life that was just scared to do the things that he needed to do. And and here's how Paul begins this letter. says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, here's what I love about Paul and the books that he writes in the Bible, uh, the epistles. He does a fantastic job in just the beginning of his letters. The the introductions uh, of Paul's letters in the Bible is there in inspired by God, uh, say more, I mean, like in two sentences than I say in my 30 minute sermons. And so just a couple of things to notice about what Paul does in this introduction right here. First of all, he says by the will of God, his apostleship, his ministry is by the will of God. And here's one thing. That we need to remember if we're going to live bigger lives, lives that accomplish something, lives that aren't just full of fear and really don't get anything done because we're sitting there going, Oh, it might not be that easy or that fun. And that is this, that that we need to recognize what our calling is. You see, Paul's about to teach Timothy about why he shouldn't be timid in his faith and in his ministry. And right at the beginning, he says, Look, the ministry that I do is something that I know God purposed in my life. He literally called me to do. If you're a Christian, God has also called you to a ministry. And until you find out what that ministry is, you're going to live your life saying, I don't know if I should really be doing this. I don't know if this is going to work. I'm kind of scared that this might not go as I want it to. But for Paul, this older kind of wiser guy that's talking to this young and timid Timothy, he very much knows what God has called him to. And so it allows for him to face death on a daily basis It allows for him to go through things because he doesn't go, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. He says, this is what God has called me to do. He says that God has called him to do this in keeping with the promise of life. And here's the the really kind of fascinating thing for me is that today in the current kind of church culture, what we see is this, there's salvation, and then maybe someday we'll get around to doing something for God. But for Paul, he says... Look, I've been called to this thing called apostleship by the will of God, and it is in keeping with the salvation that I was given in Jesus. He doesn't see a separation. For Paul, salvation leads to service. They are intertwined in such a way that you cannot separate them. And so for you, this is what I encourage, if you are a person who calls yourself a Christian, who has given your life to Jesus, who is a follower of Christ, then you need to be a person that serves, because serving is deeply intertwined, connected to the salvation that God has given you. It isn't a and-if kind of deal. It's a, I was saved so that I can serve. In this church, we offer a class called Serve that allows for you to discover what God has called you to do. And some of you have been through that, and I hope that it's it's helping you kind of shape your ministry and what God has called you to do and to figure that out. But for the rest of you, I just want to put that out there, that we'll offer that again because you need to know, if you're going to live a big life that accomplishes much, you need to know not just that God has saved you, but that God has called you to serve in a specific way to do a certain ministry. The other thing that Paul says here is the promise of life in Christ Jesus. so it's, it's an interesting thing, right? I mean, that, that in this intro, he points to the fact that we have this thing called eternal life to look forward to. And in some ways, biologically speaking, uh, everything that we're scared about comes back to us trying to sustain ourselves, right? I mean, the things that you worry about, they might seem very disconnected to your very life, but in some ways... It all comes back to you wanting to sustain your life. I mean, if you're worried about your physical health, that's an easy one, right? It's because you want to keep your life. If you're worried about popularity, probably just kind of in a biological sense, it's because you want to have more friends so that you have more protection and there's people to take care of you because you care about sustaining your life. And the truth is just about everything we worry about can be boiled all the way back to this idea of I want to live. I want to be alive. We don't want it to ever end. And so when Paul opens this letter, and at the beginning of this letter he's talking about Timothy not living this timid kind of weak life, it makes sense for him to say, hey, don't forget that in Jesus you have the promise of life that will last forever. You see, this is a big, big deal. And if you're not a Christian, then you don't have this promise. And so I would say, be very timid. I mean, just kind of live a weak life. Go sit in a corner and try not to die because this is it for you. But for those of us that are Christians, we need to recognize on a very consistent basis that we have something to look forward to beyond this. And so it changes the way in which we are going to live. You see, people have it backwards. They think, if I know that I'm going to die, then I could do some crazy stuff. I've even said that when I am at the end, whatever, whenever that might come, if I know ahead of time that, that it's just about over, that I'm going to take a hot air balloon ride. That's, that's my big thing. I'm not going to try to skydive or anything like that, because again, why do you want to feel like you're dying? Um, But I will take a hot air balloon. Somebody says you have five days to live. I'm getting in a hot air balloon. But the truth is when it comes to, to the way in which we live our lives, not in dares and things like that, but just the, the emphasis of our lives and trying to change this world for the better, the opposite should be true. I know I'll live forever. And so therefore I need not be timid about the way in which I approach this life. You see, Paul, right at this setup right here, is saying, hey, we don't need to worry about death. We don't need to worry about things because ultimately we will have the perfect life in a place called heaven if we have become Christians. That comes because Jesus died for us and you see that he connects it to grace, mercy, and peace. Grace is just the simple fact that that God looked down at sinners and he said, I want to offer you eternal life through giving my son to die on a cross despite the fact that you do not deserve it. Mercy is simply the idea that God wants to alleviate the problems, the difficulties, the hurts in our life. And we know that that will happen in this thing called eternal life. And peace is what we have as Christians, knowing that we now have a connected relationship with God. There's not conflict anymore. And knowing that we can have inner satisfaction that is not based on the circumstances around us. And so he looks at Timothy right at the beginning of this letter, right in this introduction, and he says, look... Don't live a timid life because, he hasn't even got to the timid part yet, but because you know that you will live forever, you know that you have a calling upon you, and you know the great things that Jesus has offered you. And then he says, I thank God, whom I serve as my ancestors did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you, so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice, and, I am persuaded now, lives in you also. Notice three pretty key words here. Ancestors, grandmother, and mother. Paul speaks of the heritage of Christianity. He speaks about the people who have led himself and Timothy to a place where they have given their lives to Jesus. For Paul, that meant all of the Jewish people who have gone before, some of the great men that you have heard of, maybe if you've ever been around church, like David, who beat up Goliath, killed him, in fact, and and like Samuel, who was a great prophet, and like Elijah, who was also a great prophet, and some of the mighty warriors of the Old Testament. You see... As people who are Christians today, we stand on the shoulders of some very amazing people. And their testimonies, their stories speak to us. And they say, don't be timid, first of all. And second of all, they show us that God is big and God is great. Beginning in September, kind of when the school year kicks off, we will do a sermon series on the great stories. We're going to spend 10 weeks on it of the Old Testament. I'm very excited about it. I, I don't know that I've been this excited to do a sermon series this early before because there are amazing stories. And I'm excited to tell them and try to tell them in an adult perspective because we spend our whole lives hearing them from a child's perspective, right? And so I'm excited about that series. But we stand on the shoulders of some very amazing people. But for Timothy. Those amazing people. Were not people out there. They weren't like these distant relatives. That happened to be Jewish or whatever. But they were people very close to him. Mainly his grandmother. And his mother. I think about my life. And the heritage. And I, I can't go back as far as I'd like. But, but but I think about why I'm a Christian today. And I, I can tell you it's because my dad's a Christian. And and He's probably a Christian because his mom was a Christian, my grandma, and she's probably a Christian because her parents were Christians. And and, and you can see this, this lineage of, of Christianity. And and the truth is, it's everybody's decision on whether or not they are going to accept the truth of the Bible and the gospel story. But in some ways, Paul is reminding us that if we are Christians, a lot of times it is wrapped up in the fact that there were Christians who have gone before us. And that leads to this question. I mean, it's a pretty simple question. What type of heritage are you going to leave? It's all kind of connected to this idea of living a big life or a timid life. But I mean, what are you going to leave behind? Are you going to leave a legacy of Christians where you can look down the line and and somebody could say, you know why I'm a Christian? I'm a Christian because way, way back in my family's heritage, if you go down the family tree, there was a man who decided to live fully for Christ. Or are you going to live a life that pushes the generations away from the faith that maybe even you have? Now, here's one part of that. One part of of living a life that that kind of produces this heritage is seen in, in what he says next. He says, constantly remember you in my prayers, talking to Timothy. Paul looks at Timothy and he's saying, look, whenever I pray, basically, if you can follow the wording, whenever I pray, I remember to pray for you. And I think that we just undervalue this type of relationship. This relationship that says, I will hold you up in prayer. I will be there for you because I want to see you succeed in your faith in Jesus. Some of you here have had people like this in your life. I I know that I have people like this in my life and I'm better for it. But we need to be that somebody for somebody else. I think about the heritage that we're leaving. And, and if you would just make a decision today as a as a Christian person to say, look, I am going to pray for somebody consistently. Just I'm just going to hold them up in prayer. I'm going to think about it every time I pray. I'm going to say, man, be with whoever and, and let them be living for you. And I'm going to take those prayers seriously. Then we would begin to leave a better heritage and we are already leaving. And so for for, for you, my, my encouragement is this, is that you will take this seriously, you will look around you, you will examine, you will say, who is it, God, that you want me to invest in, that you want me to care about, that you want me to love, that you want me to pray for, that you want me to, to, to pray about and, and think about constantly in my prayers, and then you will live that out on a daily basis. You see, it's time for us to once again take seriously the fact that we pass down our faith in some ways. It's not that our sons and daughters can be saved through us, but it is that we can leave, if we do it right, a positive faith for those people to see and to touch and to want to take a hold of themselves. It's one of the reasons that we do VBS, which starts tomorrow. Don't forget. Keep that in your prayers. But it's the, one of the reasons that we do that because we want to pass our faith on to the next generation. Now, here, let me tell you the alternative. The alternative is, is simply this, that you leave a negative heritage, that you leave a a line of faith that is non-existent. And, and, and many of you have seen this. You've had to overcome the faith, the lack of faith of, of your ancestors. You've had to overcome abuses that have been seen in church and, and, and in people that, that call themselves people of faith. And so you're still overcoming that line Right, And there are many people, maybe some of you, that, that aren't Christians because you look at somebody else that was in your heritage and you say, no, I am not going to cling to that because, look, they weren't serious about it. They didn't really love Jesus. They didn't really look anything like Jesus. And I believe we have a choice. Either we're going to leave our faith for somebody to follow or we're going to leave the idea of faith for somebody to push away. And my encouragement is that you will take it seriously and you will think about who you are leaving your faith for. Paul moves from here and he really gets to the heart of what he wants to say, verses 6 through 12. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as prisoner. Rather join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Paul begins by saying this reason, and that is Timothy's sincere faith. And the truth is, if we don't have a sincere faith, if we're just kind of Christian in name, then none of what Paul says after this really matters. But Paul looks at Timothy and says, I think you're a Christian but I see some problems in the way that you are approaching your life, mainly that you are timid and you seem to be ashamed of me and perhaps even the spreading of the gospel. So he begins by saying, fan into flame the gift of God. And the truth is that all of us have been given gifts. Each of us that are Christians have been equipped by the Holy Spirit to do ministry. This is important, right? I mean, if you were going to live a life, that exceeds what our world kind of calls normal, if you were going to do something powerful and big and not live a life of timidity, then you need to know that you have been uniquely gifted and equipped by the Holy Spirit if you were a Christian. You see, if you go, well, I'm not really good at anything. I mean, I don't really have any kind of special qualities in myself. Then you will never live a life that does big things. You can't. Nobody does big things if they don't think they're good at anything. And until you know that you've been uniquely equipped, that you're a superhero in some ways, in Jesus, then you will never live the life that you maybe want to live and that God definitely wants you to live. But here's the thing about these spiritual gifts that Paul seems to be saying. Just because we get them doesn't mean that we make them better and we use them fully. Paul looks at Timothy and says, you need to fan it into flame. That's a a metaphor, uh, the type of language that we still use today, right? He's saying, you need to make it better. You need to increase its usage. You need to grow your faith so that you use this better and more fully in the ministry that you are doing. Paul looks at Timothy and he says, look, you you have a gift. I mean, you have a gift and we confirmed that gift and we laid hands on you, but you can't just let it sit there and not do anything about it and not improve on it and not make it better and not use it to its fullest capacity. You need to fan it into flame." And the truth is, many of you who sit here and call yourself Christians, you are a person who has a gift, at least one gift, maybe multiple gifts, that have come through the Holy Spirit, but you're not fanning them in a flame because you're not using them, and you're not trying to grow them, and you don't have the faith in what the Spirit has equipped you with to actually put them into practice. And so for you, these words are are very relevant. I mean, he's saying, hey, fan it in a flame. Don't waste it. Actually use it. There's some athletes, right? I mean, you think about athletes and some just drive you absolutely nuts because this is the number one thing that drives me just mad about college and professional athletes. It's when they are extremely gifted, but there is something about their personality or something about their work ethic that does not allow them, that causes them not to maximize the potential that they've been given. We have one of those. I won't name names because I hope he comes to our church someday. But uh, we have a trailblazer that, uh, that, that fits that mold really, really well. And, and he just drives me nuts because I look at the talent, his six foot eleven frame, uh, his super long arms, his ability to shoot. And I think, man, dude, if you give me your body and your athleticism, then I'm twice as good as you. I'm twice as good as you because I'm not scared to get knocked over. He's never coming to church. Um... <laughs> And this drives us nuts, right? But the truth is most Christians are living in this kind of state. God's looking down here and he's going, I've gifted you, but you're not using it. You're not making it better. You're not working hard to put it into practice. And it's such a waste of a talent, a gift of God. And so Paul says to Timothy, look, you need to be a person that fans into flame this gift. You need to make it better says, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as a prisoner." This is really interesting, right? Because it seems that Timothy is looking at what's going on around him. And in some ways he's kind of ashamed at it. And there's two things that are going on here. First of all, Paul is writing this book from prison. He's writing it in prison and Timothy and seems to be going, man, you're my mentor. You're kind of this big shot of the faith in which I'm a part. You're about to die in a prison cell. And it's kind of embarrassing somewhere inside of me. I mean, I'm kind of like, he probably didn't vocalize it. Paul could probably tell. I would just imagine, right? Because you don't say those types of things, but it's kind of like, and you're, you're one of us and, and look at your situation in life. And and in some ways he, he seems to be ashamed of, of even the testimony of Jesus. And, and here's what's happening at the time aside from Paul. And that is that there are tons of false teachers around Timothy and they're trying to tear down the gospel story. And they're saying, Jesus was just some Jew that died. He's not the Lord, he's not the savior. And the people who are Jewish that aren't Christians are going, "This is this cannot be this a savior." And the other people are going, "This is ridiculous. Like you're worshipping a guy that died. How can that be?" And so in some way Timothy in the midst of this kind of confusion and these false teachers and these people who are against the gospel is kind of like backing down into a corner and going, "I don't know if I want to talk about Jesus so much in front of people because" I might get made fun of and it might cost me my life and I might go to prison and things like that. Pretty true to what we're experiencing today, is it not? I mean, I only see kind of two people in the world of Christianity today. There are those who are loud and mean and there are those who just back themselves into a corner and say, I'm not going to talk about truth, and I'm not going to. I'm not going to try to tell anybody about Jesus, and I'm not going to. I'm not going to pretend. I'm going to pretend I'm not a Christian, you know, when I'm at work because because I really I, I look at some of the Christians who are more vocal and they're getting made fun of, and I don't want to be that guy. And, and and I I look at all the false teachings around, and uh I don't know, it doesn't really fit with what our society's teaching today, and so we kind of we're, we're this very timid, right? And and those are the two sides in which I see. And here's the thing. Paul gives a bunch of reasons on why Timothy shouldn't be this way about his situation in prison. I'll just give them to you really quickly. He says, first of all, because we are saved and called to a holy life. We can't look like the rest of the world and pretend not to be Christians. Because if we are truly Christians, then we should in our lives look so different than people can't, that people cannot help but see that we are Christians. I mean, Paul says, look, we're called to holiness, which means set-apartness. That means to be different than everybody else. And so to be a Christian that kind of tries to act like you're not a Christian is to not be a Christian at all. Paul says, look, your life and my life must be so different as Christians that people go, yeah, I don't know. I mean, they're not saying anything about Jesus, but they're not me or like me or like the other people that I hang out with. Paul also says this. He says, that the grace was given before the beginning of time. This is pretty this is pretty interesting to me. I mean, this is kind of a big deal, right? We look at culture and sometimes our culture and the way in which it's going kind of causes us to be backed into a corner and be timid. But Paul's like, "Hey, this Jesus thing, it was kind of here in God's head and and heart before we even started." I mean, this is this Christian thing is is not like this cultural phenomenon. It's not going to last 10 years. It's been here since before God even created Adam and Eve. This faith that you have is not new. These ideas that exist in our world might be, but this faith is super old. That's a big deal. He also says this, Jesus destroyed death and brought eternal life. How is that something that we can be ashamed of? I mean, right? Everything everybody worries about is all connected to this idea of sustaining life. And he says, Hey, Jesus like conquered death. You shouldn't be ashamed of that. That's cool. I mean, like, I want to be part of something that's cool, and that is cool. Jesus said, hey, death, sorry, you don't win anymore, because I conquered it by getting out of the grave. Paul says that he is a herald of the wonderful gospel. It's not like Paul is running around saying stupid stuff. He's running around telling people about a guy who got out of a grave and conquered death so that everybody could have eternal life. Right? I mean, that's not something to be ashamed about. That's something to celebrate and be excited about and to express to others. He says that God is able to guard what has been entrusted to him. Now, this can mean two things that God is entrusting Paul with the gospel, or that Paul is entrusting his life and his works and his converts to God. And I think the second one is probably the truth of it. And so uh, Paul is looking at Timothy and saying, look, don't be ashamed because God is in control and he can take care of us. He can take care of you, Timothy as you deal with these difficult things. And in verse 7, which I skipped over kind of there, the, the, the big statement, the one that I want us to focus on, kind of the center and the heart of everything that, that Paul is saying here, and this is it. For the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Timidity means fear, moral cowardice, or timidity. And, and so he's looking at Timothy... And he's saying, I don't want you to be a Christian. This says, I'm just trying to get by. I'll just kind of hang out over here and hope people don't get mad at me. I'm not going to be forceful in the gospel because, you know what, I'm going to get made fun of. Paul says, look, that is not the spirit that you have been given when you have become a Christian. God is not the one causing you to back up into a corner and saying, I really hope that all these false teachers, these people teaching things I don't agree with will eventually go away. I read in a book called Organic Church, great book if you want a book on church, and it said that we've kind of taken the idea that, that the gates of hell will never, will never overtake the church. That's a, a Bible verse. We've taken that idea, and we've just kind of put up gates and said, okay, they can come this far, but God promises that they won't get me. But really, if you study the New Testament as a whole, it's far more proactive than that. We, as Christian people, should be out trying to change the world for the better. We have not been given a spirit of timidity. You look at the early Christians that we stand on their shoulders. They are a part of our lineage, right? You look at them and they were not people that sat around going, I hope that people will become Christians, but I don't want to get made fun of. They said, I'm telling everybody about Jesus. I'm gonna tell everybody about Jesus and and when they beat me, that's fine because I'm gonna I'm gonna get up when I'm better and I'm gonna tell more people about Jesus. And when they put me in prison, I'll pray that God will get me out of prison, but if he doesn't, I'll tell everybody in this prison about Jesus. And, and if they kill me, that's fine, because it will spread the gospel further, and I will have been worthy of dying. For the sake of Jesus, my Lord and my Savior. You see, look at the early Christians and there was was not a lot of timidity in them. They were out and they were spreading the gospel. They were not mean. They were not hurtful to the society around them. They simply said, I'm not going to sit back and let you win and let your ideas prevail because I'm going to teach the truth of what I believe. And instead of this, and you see this in the early church, there's three things that Paul says we have been given when we become Christians. And the only question is, are we taking a hold of it and advantage of it or not? The first is power. Paul says you have been given a spirit not of timidity, but of power. When we become Christians, we become something stronger, not weaker. We become something bigger, something more powerful, a more powerful force because... Because the God of the universe literally comes into our lives. I mean, think the one who creates comes into our lives. How could we not be more powerful than before? You look at the beginning of church, Acts 2. And you see this group of guys that become the first Christians. And they're huddled in an upper room. And they're praying. Kind of like Christians today. Kind of huddled and praying, right? And that's what it looks like. And then the Holy Spirit comes. And the next thing you see, the disciples go outside, Peter preaches a sermon, 3,000 people become Christians in one day. The next thing you see is that the disciples are arrested for preaching the gospel, and they say to the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders, hey, we don't care what you say, because we're going to keep preaching the gospel. And the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders are like... Where did these guys get all this great learning? I mean, where is this kind of authority and this power coming from? And the disciples knew it came because the Holy Spirit came upon their lives. We have not been given a spirit of timidity as Christians, but one of power. We now have the power of God inside of us to change this world. We need not sit back and say, I really hope things get better. We need to press on. We've also been given the spirit of love. Far too often when I look at Christians, they go to the other side. They say, well, I've been given a a job to do and the power to do it, and so I'm just going to beat people up. I'm just going to beat them up with my newfound power. But that is not the spirit that we have been given. We have not been given a spirit of tell everybody how stupid they are. We've been given a spirit of love. We've not been given a spirit of look at everybody and judge them and just wish that they were more like us. Instead we've been given a spirit of love. You see, we confuse the idea and we either we either sit back and do nothing or we, we take on this idea of power and we say, Well, I have power and I'm gonna pick at everything and I'm gonna yell at as many people as possible and I'm gonna get in people's personal space and not even respect their opinions, but just tell them why they're idiotic. Right? We don't like when anybody does that to us, but yet we've been given the spirit of power. But Paul is also saying we have been given the spirit of love. We are to be the most loving human beings on the planet. Not one person should outlove a Christian. We should not be able to look around at people that are not followers of Jesus and, and go, Wow, they seem to care about people more than I do. Because that is not the spirit that we have been given. We've been given the spirit of God. And the spirit of God loved everybody so much that that he gave his son to come to earth to die so that people could be saved. And when you look at Jesus, the one whom we follow, whom spirit we have, he didn't live a life of running around yelling at people. He lived a life of running around loving people. He didn't go around saying, you're an idiot, you're an idiot, you're wrong, you're stupid, I, I don't know what you're thinking, I wish that you would just be more like me. He said, I love you, I'm going to change this world because I'm going to I'm gonna recognize the power that is within me and I'm going to use that power and I'm going to love you. And it also says, and this is pretty important, that we've been given a spirit of self-discipline. It's pretty fascinating to me because I, I think of the average Christian life and the things you hear, like, I wish that i could stop this sin in my life you know whatever that sin might be and i wish i could read the bible and pray more and then we get this like attitude of timidity like oh i just can't do it i just i've tried so many times and i can't do it and we're like this negative nancy and and it's it's just i just it's unfathomable because we have been given the spirit of self-discipline Instead of, this is what I think, instead of like, oh, I should probably give up that one sin and I should read the Bible more. We should be like these people who are like, I could just, I could just be almost perfect. I mean, I could conquer the sin in my life and I could live such a self-disciplined life because the spirit of God has come into my life. I mean, we kind of we, we, we want to push that idea away because there have been Christian theologians who say that we could possibly uh, achieve perfection as Christian people. And so there's something in us because we kind of look at the sin. We say like, well, that's I don't really agree with that. And so whatever, I'm going to keep sinning and it's going to happen. But but we've been given the spirit of self-discipline. And, and I don't think that we can ever probably live out a perfect life. We're on this earth. but But... We shouldn't just be people who are like, I hope I don't sin today. I hope I kind of get up and read the Bible and pray more. We should be people who are like, I'm going to conquer the sin in my life. Conquer is a much better word than I hope I won't. I'm going to conquer the sin in my life. I am going to live outrageously for Jesus, which is going to mean spending time with Him. I'm not going to try to spend 10 minutes in reading the Bible every day, but I'm going to have an approach to the Word of God that says, God, you are speaking to me, and so I want to come to it, and I want to hear from you, and I want to learn from you, and I want to know what you're saying to me, and, and I want to know what you want me to do because of this power and this love in my life, and I'll go do Do it because I've been given a spirit of self-discipline. A spirit that allows me to do what's right even when it's difficult. You look at verse 7. I mean, can't we all admit, I can tell by the look in your eyes. You look at this verse, and it is not the way we think. When I look at Christians, they are these timid, myself included sometimes, these timid, backed into a corner, kind of hoping that we can do right most of the time, wishing that it was easier people. But we've been given the spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. It's interesting to me. I read this book, Why Men Hate Going to Church, and what it talked about is how churches are filled up with a bunch of women, a way higher percentage than the average population, and a bunch of men that... uh, are not very manly, if I can get away with saying that. I thought of like three other ways to say that in my head, but none of them were going to be okay in Oregon, at least. That's what, and so we have manly men, and, and this is not so true in our church. And I, I like that about our church, and I think I'm doing something right. And maybe because I, I get loud when I'm talking, and and I I don't I, I don't think I pull punches. I, I I mean I think you need to know the truth, and I think men are drawn to that. And so we have men that come and stay, and uh, and that's a good thing. But but for the most part, when you look at American churches today. It's full of unmanly men and women, and I think it's because they look at us and they go, "Wow, that's just such a timid religion." I mean, I want to, I want to do something. I want to be great, and most men want to be like a superhero in some way and accomplish great things and and have a purpose in life. And and women want those things too, but in, in men, there's like this this drive to do something and to succeed at something and to to live kind of a big life. And men are looking at Christianity and going. It doesn't seem to be the religion. It seems to be a religion where you sing songs on Sunday. I mean, that's what it is. You sing about your love for this guy that lived a couple thousand years ago, and that's not so manly. But Paul is like, this is what Christianity is. It's the most powerful, loving, self-disciplined thing on the planet of Earth. And so here, here's my encouragement for us. We need to be people... Who stops saying, I'm kind of scared and I'm I'm just going to live this timid life. And we need to man up. And we need to recognize the power that exists inside of us. And we need to act on that power and also act on the love and the self-discipline that have come through the Holy Spirit. This is what we need. This is what we need, if I could put it in these terms. We need to stop hiding in the front of Pirates of the Caribbean. And we need to stand up and say, hey, Pirate, if you want to fight, let's go. I mean, if if, if really, if you're coming at me, well, I'm coming right back at you because I have the Spirit of God inside of me. I'm not going to be mean to you, but I'm not going to back down from you because I have the Spirit of God literally living inside of me. And it's not one of timidity. It's not one of fear. It's not one of just kind of getting through this life and hoping I make my way into heaven. It's one that says, I'm going to change the world. Because through Christ, I've become a person that is powerful and loving and self-disciplined beyond anything that this world can know apart from Christ. And, and so as you walk out of this place, I just, I really want you to stop thinking like, I hope and I may and and, and start to really just say, how do I put the power, the love and the self-discipline into practice? To do something amazing for the the very God and Savior who gave me those things. Will you pray with me, Lord? I'm, I thank you that I'm not. It doesn't even fit my personality to be part of, of a faith that that is timid, Lord, and uh, and so I, I just pray that. That we would take a hold of those things that are already inside of us as, as Christians, and and I thank you that your Spirit came and you, and you've gifted us and you've shown us that we have eternal life, so we need not fear, and, and, and you've you've given us these these promises, Lord, that allow for us to live powerfully. And Lord, I, I pray in, in our church at least, and and in, in Christianity as a whole, that that we would move past this this kind of weak mentality where we're scared of what people might think and we're scared that, uh, we're scared that, I don't know, the bad guys are going to take over the country or whatever it might be, Lord, but but let us live lives that that for your sake are big because we, God, are, are living powerfully and, and lovingly and with just so much self-discipline. And Lord, I pray that we would never forget any of those. I ask that we would never, that we would never just say, "Well, I'm gonna, I'm kind of gonna just love people and I'll forget about self-discipline and power. I'll give in to sin and I'll forget truth." And or that we wouldn't say, "Well, I'm just, I'm powerful now and so get out of my way. I'm gonna run you over. I'm gonna go on another crusade to bring people into this religion." But let us remember all three of those things and that you have brought us to them. And God, I pray that the people that are that are right here with me right now would change the world. God, I pray the people who are here right now would leave a legacy of faith that would go for generations and generations, not just for one person, but for many, for hundreds, for thousands. And the world would be forever better because God, they took advantage of the spirit that you have given them. They fanned into flame the gifts. They remembered their eternal life and they served in the way that you wanted them to. I ask these things in your holy, awesome, powerful, loving, self-disciplined name. Amen.